One of my favorite comedians is Bill Burr. He's got this bit where he and his girlfriend are strolling around a street fair. You know, they close off the block. There's like shawarma. There's like stuff made out of buttons, right? People with no teeth are making keychains, right? No, we show up, right? The first thing she sees is this big table and nothing but homemade jewelry, right? It's got twigs, macaroni in it. It's just, it's a table of crap. It's crap. But she loves it. She's like, oh my God, look at these earrings. Do you like these? I just want to be like, no. If they were nice, they'd, they'd be in a store, all right? If they were nice, they'd be in a store. And for a long time, that was true. Retailers have historically been the gatekeepers of, well, things. They went out, curated the best products made by other companies, and put them all in one convenient location for us to find and to purchase. So if a store thought something was good enough to take up valuable real estate on their limited shelf space, then we all knew it was good enough to buy. But as the slow-moving death of the mall would suggest, more consumers have taken their shopping online where the shelf space is unlimited. Window shopping? Yeah, more like Microsoft window shopping. We're filling up our carts on our phones, tablets, and laptops. And, well, of course we are. You don't have to park. You don't have to navigate that shopping cart with the one wonky wheel. You don't have to see, uh, you know, other people. We all hate each other, and shopping alone in our homes keeps the evil within us in check. So, hey, no surprise, retailers are investing in amazing e-commerce experiences, allocating advertising dollars to drive even more people online, and closing brick-and-mortar locations. And thus, online shopping is a coup of the retail space. Or is it? I actually don't think so. I think the coup of shopping is something else. See, it's not just that more consumers are moving online, but that more consumers are avoiding retailers altogether. They're buying products directly from the people who make them. The real coup is that brands don't need retailers anymore. They're not just eliminating a channel, they're eliminating an entire industry. So how are they doing? How are mostly young, online-only startups convincing consumers to buy into one-on-one -on -one relationships? And if there's no independent retail worker helping us make the right choices, how are these new direct-to-consumer brands gaining our trust? And are direct-to-consumer brands truly revolutionary? Or, you know, is this just the modern-day equivalent of a door-to-door -door encyclopedia salesman with an Instagram account? Is this just Glen Gary Glenn Ross for the first prize is an Eldorado? The second prize is a set of steak knives. And the third prize is that someone unfollows you. Hmm, maybe it's both. Whoever they are, they're coming for the establishment. And they're not storming the castle. They're storming the store. I'm your host, Ron Tite, and this is The Coup.
Believe it or not, online-only retailers are disrupting the shopping space because many of them have managed to design the most consistently satisfying customer experience. Skincare and makeup brand Glossier has built a cult-like following by creating, in part, a memorable unboxing experience. According to Senior Vice President of Marketing, Ali Weiss, Glossier's packaging is painfully thought out with delivery in mind. Here she is explaining their strategy last year at Dynamic Montreal. So if you take the example of the moon mask, which is that beautiful jar you see with a G and an extremely intricate illustration in the center of the box there, if you flip that on its side and were to put it on a shelf at a beauty retailer like Sephora, it is a clear jar with white cream in it and just black text that says Glossier Moon Mask. What's really interesting is because we're not constrained by a shelf, we actually created that packaging specifically for Instagram. So if you think about the human behavior of taking your phone and leaning over something like food to take a picture, that's exactly what that packaging was created for. And that attention to detail has paid off big time. Sure, there's no smiling salesperson handing you your purchase and telling you how grateful they are for shopping with them, but their packaging does all the talking. No retailer, no middleman, just them and you. It's direct to consumer, or as we say in the biz, D to C. Do you know what direct to consumer used to be called? Infomercials. Blankets are okay, but they can slip and slide. Now, there's the Snuggie, the blanket that has sleeves. The Hi, it's Vince with ShamWow. Are you tired of flat, boring hairstyles? Then bump it up with Bump It. Call now. Operators are standing by for just three easy payments of $19.99. You could own anything. From a pet rock to spray on hair, which, funny enough, I could use right about now. Look, infomercials always felt a little, I don't know, snake oily, didn't they? But these days, D2C has new life. Click on a slick, brightly colored ad while scrolling, and suddenly, boom, you're at checkout. From never having heard about it to checking the delivery tracker twice a day, all within minutes. And really, all of these disruptive, innovative companies are coming right to us. HelloFresh, Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, Glossier. I mean, you've been hit with ads from at least one of these startups, right? Of course you have. They're all direct-to-consumer, which means these companies are directly in your news feeds, on your podcasts, and being worn, used, and slept on by all of your favorite celebrities. These companies are trying to compete with traditional brands in huge markets by sidestepping the retail channel entirely and offering a vastly improved consumer experience, a more attractive price point, and a limited range of products. And packaged all up with a, yeah, we hate the establishment guys too, sales pitch. And despite the historical cheesiness of this talking right to you approach, it's working. Andy Katz Mayfield, founder of startup razor company Harry's, is one of the people leading this charge. He thought there had to be a better way to buy razors. Andy got ripped off. Getting ripped off sucks. Why do razors cost so much? Like there's no real good reason. Actually, Jeff, there is a reason. One big razor company has relentlessly increased prices for decades, making insane profits at the expense of customers. So Jeff and Andy decided to start their own shaving company. Jeff and Andy's parents were proud. Did we conceive Andy to take on Big Razor in an epic battle of David versus Goliath? Oh, hell yeah going to the store, 
getting the clerk to unlock the special cabinet, choosing from dozens of models that all looked identical. And then, oh, then you pay $30 for four razors? Come on, that's ridiculous. So Andy and his friend Jeff Ryder worked hard, found a way to make a great razor with cheap blades that came right to your door. They started with 10,000 razor handles in 2013 and sold out in a few days. And today, they make about mm, 200 million in sales a year. Hundreds of DTCs have figured out a way to take that proverbial special cabinet out of the equation. And they've had very similar success stories. But first, before I get into how they did it, is direct-to-consumer, is that is that cool now? And not just like cool, is D2C the new bellwether of retail? My good friend Scott Stratton is the president of Unmarketing, and he's written a lot about this trend. Forbes once named him one of the top five social media influencers in the world. So yeah, he's kind of a big deal on Twitter, and he has a t-shirt that says that. As a gift, Scott recently got me this thing called Moonlight. It's like a viewmaster you attach to your phone that projects stories onto the ceiling for a really cool new take on bedtime stories with your kid. Max loves it. Scott was just scrolling through Instagram one day, and that targeted ad got him. He clicked, was suitably impressed, added it to the cart, and bought it from me. Or, well, for Max, my son. And really... It's a good example of how this new machine works. There is a product that we didn't know we we wanted right. or needed. We see it. It interrupts our flow of content. It is, uh, by way of demonstration, immediate demonstration, with a click to buy immediately. <laughs> yeah. Is that not just an infomercial? Yeah, 100%. But we used to we used to talk down to it. We used to, we don't trust infomercials. We used to make fun of infomercials. But here's the it thing. We fl- did, was... but no. It, it, infomercials are the nickelback of business. <laughs> everybody, everybody makes fun of them, but everybody listens to them. Nobody admits that it works, but they do millions. I remember sitting down with the, the founder of... Of the, the who did all the infomercials, so I can't remember. Scott's referring to Kevin Harrington, the as seen on TV founder. He's like the the king. I can't. I'm like, what products you know just didn't work? He's like, none. <laughs> he said, there's a market for everything out there. You just got to. Is it? Can you spend enough economically to reach those people? And when we mock it, part of it, I think, as marketers, when we mock infomercials, what we're saying is we're just cheesed that we didn't invent that product, right? right? Like the, the slap chop. Oh, come on. Right? Yeah, I, yeah. That flex seal? I got a can in my garage, right? That's The point is the home shopping network uses more data than most marketers use today. They know exactly what works. They're extremely smart, and they know their audience. Okay, so Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, and the lot have figured out how to turn down the cheese. And, says Scott, modern technology offered a crucial second step in legitimizing and helping the evolution of D2C. Now, instead of one spokesperson giving the in-studio sales pitch in one viral TV spot, the new infomercial, I mean, DTC advertisement, looks like celebrities and influencers posting paid endorsement videos and links for 10% off across their social channels. And because there's so many people working with and supporting these companies, posting glowing reviews online and telling their friends, trust has been injected into these products. It used to be called the testimonial. Now it's called social proof. 
You know, like the moment you notice enough friends using the same makeup brand or when you walk past a busy restaurant. I mean, if this many people are buying, it's got to be good, right? Social proof is always important, but now the social proof is the reviews, right? Which is how we ended up buying six online mattresses for our family was social proof was a huge part of that. Okay, you say it's good. I want to hear if my peers say it's good. We'll trust strangers before we'll trust a brand. We'll trust a serial killer if he says the burritos at this Mexican place are great. You know, he, he might kill people, but the, he needs guacamole in his life. So we trust strangers much quicker than that if it's a consensus of strangers. And that's, to me, the new push of an infomercial. It's the brands then taking those reviews and pushing them out in their own commercials. That's smart. Testimonials were the before and after photos, you know, pull quotes chosen by the company to highlight just how good what they were offering was. Uncomfortably scripted in a way that no human person would ever talk. But now it's authentic tweets that people choose to share alongside the people being paid to. It's a customer-driven Uber rating for all to see. It's alive and transparent, taken out of the hands of the business and placed firmly into the hands of those who use its service. But you know, something crucial had to happen to guarantee that the people would really get on board, that there would be, you know, positive word of mouth, generous return policies, convenient, and reliable shipping, speedy and sympathetic support reps, you know, excellent customer service. Something that has, well, historically been, Scott? Let's face it. Selling to consumers is a pain in the ass. Humans are terrible. That, that's the whole statement, by the way. <laughs> people in general are terrible when it comes to customer service type of things. That takes a huge amount of people, a huge amount of time, and it's, a lot of times we don't have that. So I understand why we don't go direct to consumer, especially classically, because then you have to deal with that. I will cut half my revenue from this product mm -hmm. if you deal with all the shit. That's fine. You just take all that type of stuff. But now you realize, you know what? Here's the problem. When I give you the responsibility of service, when I give you the responsibility of distribution, and if you screw that up, that's my brand. Mm -hmm. And that's where these companies like Endy comes out and says, you know what? This is this is being done terribly. We can disrupt this. Because one of the parts of disruption, one of the parts of a coup is not just the product. It's the service to that product in that industry. Right. And most industries are horrible at service, especially product-based industries, because they don't think they're in the service business. But that's what does it. It's not about ordering something off of Amazon. It's ordering something off of Amazon, and then, then when it doesn't work, they're like, no problem, send it back. Yep. That's the difference. Solving the problems the current mega brands can't or won't. That is the central tenet of any coup. When a reigning establishment creates and leaves problems unaddressed, whether by design or lack of imagination, they don't just become vulnerable to competition, they invite it. Mike Geddes is the CEO and co-founder of Endy. You've probably seen their ads around. They send you a mattress in a box. Yes, just like crackers and macaroni, a box for your mattress. Since Mike and I spoke, Endy has been acquired by Sleep Country. But at the time, they were still a startup, and a successful one at that. See, Endy sells one type of mattress, they roll it up into a cardboard box, and then they ship it from their warehouse right to your doorstep. Mike knew it was kind of risky to ask people to buy a mattress direct. I mean, this is something you only buy once every decade, and that you use every day, Buying it sight unseen and rolled into a box that shows up on your doorstep? Well, it's a far cry from the lie down in every mattress for five minutes showrooms many of us bought our first pets from. So knowing it was a leap of trust, Andy decided to offer a 100-night risk-free trial. 
They not only encourage people to try out the product for its intended use, you know, snoring on it, but Andy also bet that it was a long enough time to inspire social proof. And because of that, a surprising additional purpose emerged, a focus group. One of the main things from looking at the idea of focus groups is people who are lying on a mattress and sleeping at night are in a much different mind state than someone who has a lot of coffee and chips <laughs> and they're sitting in a room and someone's like, do you like it? Do you like yeah, it? Yeah, You're yeah, going to yeah. check for a hundred bucks at the end if you give us a good answer. And they're just like in a totally different state. They're like, I think it's good. I like the pattern, maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah. but if they're sleeping yeah. on it and they're getting Z's and they wake up refreshed the next day, that's, I think, where you really see that like aha moment. Like I've been doing it wrong all my life. This right. is the way. And that's what's driving a lot of our positive reviews and why people really like uh, ND and love the brand and what we've done because we're the goal is to build a brand promise that's deliverable of just delivering a great mattress and a great sleep. Yeah. And, and that's it. Okay. So not only has ND created this popular product, but they've also designed a successful customer service and review model around it. But beyond bringing those two things together as a D2C, how do you convince other potential customers to take the leap beyond, you know, trust us? So for a big start of it is instead of getting into having rubberized horsehair and all these fancy technologies, we just said it's a great mattress. It's a great sleep on it. Give it a try. The trial is a big part of it. And then the review base has been a big part. But at the very beginning, a lot of that was based on finding the right demographic. So the right demographic for us was tech startup people like myself. Yeah. Like actually just love the business model and were people like you who were just interested in how direct to consumer works. And they're like, great, I want to try this. So they were sort of the first sort of tranche. And then as we move through, as it's become more mainstream, then it's more just about like, well, you know, I could go, there's all these options of stores and whatnot. And they're looking at all of it. And they decided to buy our mattress based on sort of a friend has recommended it or something yeah. like that. Modern technology used to drastically improve the logistics of making big purchases? Check. Stellar customer service? Check. Customer-driven reviews and word-of-mouth advertising? Check. I mean, what else do you need? Oh, right. Something worth buying. And it's not just a nice product. It's one so amazing that it inspires customers to leapfrog over retail gatekeepers to come knocking at your door or have you at theirs. And to accomplish this high standard, a lot of D2C models are following a very simple rule. Limited product choice. Focus on making just a few things and make them perfect. Call in third-party researchers to tell you what makes the perfect blade, like Harry's did. Or data mine what material customers actually like in a mattress and combine them, like Indy did. Sure, you may lose some potential customers who prefer an air or futon mattress over the latex one or would rather invest in some five-blade rotating handle action. But the logistical simplicity of selling one kind of thing, if you get it right, will be worth it. My name is Barry Schwartz. I'm a psychologist. I spent 45 years teaching at Swarthmore College. I moved to the Bay Area and I'm a faculty member at the Haas School of Business at Berkeley. And I've spent my entire life studying psychology of decision-making. Schwartz literally wrote the book on the concept of choice paralysis called The Paradox of Choice. And even though it goes against the long-time trend of mega brands finding a way to sell you just about every product you'd ever need or think of, Schwartz argues that offering too much choice can induce a lot of anxiety in consumers. There's no question that choice is good. And it's good for a variety of reasons. It's good because it enables people to get exactly the yogurt 
they want. And it's good because it gives people a sense that they're in control of their lives. And I think a life without choice is really not a human life. So the argument was simply that we had assumed, uh, psychologists had assumed, economists had assumed, marketers had certainly assumed that since choice is good, more is better. And the point of my book was simply to say, no, more is not better. A point is reached where you paralyze people instead of liberating them. And we have long since passed that point, at least in affluent Western societies. The West, especially when it comes to consumerism, has standardized and even idealized offering a baffling amount of choice by equating it with a sense of freedom, at times even wielding it as a political statement, especially during, you know, the Cold War, the 80s. And I can't think of anything that encapsulates that more than this popular Wendy's ad from that era called the Soviet Fashion Show. All the categories, David, evening bed. It was just, it was the same woman joining back and forth in the same potato sack looking garment and babushka. It seemed to say, look how boring, how uncivilized it is to not give the people options. Let the people choose, said Wendy's. Having no choice is no fun. That was the tagline at the end of the commercial. Choice is capitalism, and that's patriotic. Right. So us marketers and advertisers loved parading around a huge variety of products as this positive, progressive thing. And maybe in the end, eh, we got a bit carried away. Eliminating the number of decisions you make in a day, argues Dr. Schwartz, can actually save you brain power. I mean, Steve Jobs and Barack Obama famously figured out a uniform to wear every day. Steve Jobs had the jeans and the black turtleneck thing, and Obama stuck to a black or gray suit, and Zuckerberg, well, he's got that hoodie. You know, just so they wouldn't have to waste a moment of daily decision-making time on their wardrobe. Heck, I took a page from their book. I only wear traveler's pants from Banana Republic, a gingham dress shirt, and covered up with a Ralph Lauren gray or off-gray sweater. And on that professional wardrobe tip, even the idea of casual Friday may have induced fresh anxiety to employees, says Schwartz. Ugh, now people had to go out and buy clothes that were more formal than sweats and a t-shirt, but less formal than their everyday workwear. So for some, it added stress instead of reducing it. Okay, I get that too much choice can and does lead to some paralysis. But why does it so often, I mean, even after we've made a decision, leave us feeling dissatisfied? What my colleagues and I have found is this. Um, when, when there are only a few options, how good do you expect the best option to be? If you're reasonable and you've got a choice between Lee's and Levi's, you're not going to expect your genes to fit you perfectly because there are only two options. When there are 50 options or 500 options, you kind of know that somewhere out there is the perfect pair of genes. And so you finally buy a pair of genes, and the question you ask is, how good are these genes? 
And the way you answer it is by comparing it to what you expect. And when the choices are limited, you don't expect much. So you may even occasionally be pleasantly surprised. But when there are infinite choices, what you expect is perfection. So even if you get something good, if it's not perfect, you feel like you failed or you're disappointed. So I think it's almost inevitable that when the choice options go up, our expectations also go up. And every time we judge the quality of a decision we make, we are judging it against how good we expected it to be. Rather, we don't have to walk around with an absolute standard for assessing the size of jeans, the quality of restaurant meals. Um, It's always a, a judgment relative to expectations. And high expectations are the enemy of satisfaction. 600 channels and nothing to watch. Scroll Netflix for an hour and then just give up. It can't all be junk, right? We just expect to be dazzled every time and nothing less. But the inverse of this argument is that actually, it's not about the amount or the complexity of choice before you, but really the lack of information you have about each one of your options. If I knew all the details, well, then I could make the most informed choice. But who has time for that? I mean, just the notion that I'd investigate how each shampoo might interact with my hair. Hmm, Let's see. Do I want the tingling root vegetable blend for split ends or the manly essence of lavender with the follicle stimulating bald spot hiding? Ooh, Alberto in a two in one shampoo system. Oh, God, no. Come on. Nowadays, other people, along with a thousand different algorithms, do that reviewing and testing for us. Recently, I got asked on Twitter about Glossier products and which ones Today we're doing a video review of the original Casper mattress. So as you'd imagine, we've done a lot. What's up, everyone? Today I'm going to be doing a review and unboxing of what I got from uh, Dollar Shave Club. I've seen their ads for years on... uh, And we just hope and really assume they're being honest. Well, the reality is, despite the success that touting real reviews by real people has brought D2C businesses, it can sometimes... I don't know, feel a bit off. And that's because not all reviews and endorsements are as authentic or as willful as they look. Since scanning the ratings from fellow consumers has become a vital step in the D2C shopping experience, writing detailed reviews and posting well-lit unboxing videos on social media and retail websites has become a business all on its own. Calling into question how honest virtual social proof can ever really be. According to a 2018 investigation by the Washington Post, a number of Amazon customer reviews were paid for. Quote, for some popular product categories, such as Bluetooth headphones and speakers, the vast majority of reviews appear to violate Amazon's prohibition on paid reviews. End quote. And given that Amazon happens to be the top e-commerce site, the reality that consumers may be relying on false ratings is not great. And on the subject of disclosure, you should know that one of Amazon's biggest competitors, Walmart, is a client of my agency, Church and State. In Canada, the ASC, Advertising Standards Canada, recently updated its regulations to counter the growing trend of influencers and celebrities not disclosing paid partnerships or material exchanges when endorsing products to their audiences. Now, tagging posts and videos with hashtags like hashtag sponsored and hashtag ad is the standard. But beyond the politics of a product star rating, the bottom line is we want brands to make us something innovative, reasonably priced, and reliable. 
And most importantly, we want to know which companies are making something great and which ones are just peddling stuff that is kind of maybe sometimes great. Well, some DTCs are working to eliminate the guessing work when it comes to quality. Bonobos, a D2C men's clothing company, exhaustively researched how to make the perfect pair of pants. European pants were typically too high-rise. American pants were boxing and had too much room in the thigh. Canadian pants were very polite. They poured over every minute detail, consulting old-world tailors, data mining. They considered real-world wear, curving the waistbands to suit most belts. They were obsessive. Style is opinion, fit is fact. That's their motto. And according to them, they achieved what they set out to do. They created the perfect pair of pants. Now, all this may sound like just good old market research, but come on, if you're betting the farm on just one or two products with no gatekeepers to recommend you, you better gather as much information as you possibly can. Cite your sources, dot your eyes, and you better offer it all transparently. Like your life depends on it. Because it kind of does. And with this exhaustive product knowledge and reasoning behind each part of your product's inception, you'll not only sell people on what you're selling, but you'll sell them on you as the one they're buying it from. Telling a riveting, honest product story is what most of the successful D2C companies focus on. Less emphasis on competing and besting the other guy, and more placed on what customers actually say they want as a holistic experience. From the moment they land on your website, to 100 days after their free trial. Here's Mike from ND again. I think competition is an antiquated view. I think if you look at this whole Darwinistic thinking, I think it gets misconstrued. Like everyone talks about this whole idea of survival of the fittest, but Darwin really said survival of the most adaptable. But that didn't mean you had to eat your competition. <laughs> that doesn't make you adaptable. That just makes you a predator. Right? <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, so I don't think, like, even if you look at it from that perspective, it's just like being adaptable to change. And when the winds blow, being a bit more flexible. And the incumbents tend to be less flexible, but not all of them. Some of them are like, we have to disrupt ourselves or they yeah. whatever. And there are ones out there, like Walmart's a good example. Yep. They were that classic business case of building the moat and yep. having the stores and not letting competitors enter. And now competitors are flooding into Walmart space and they're adapting and becoming an e-commerce player and, and giving Amazon a run for their money. So they're still going. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it depends on the company. Do you worry that you'll become that? Like, like I guess, is that the worry of every entrepreneur? Like at some point... Um, where this company is going to get to that stage where we're the incumbent and now we get a little, we rest on our laurels and... That would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we're the winner and then someone disrupts us. If we're at that stage, then I'll probably be fatter and uh, perfect. I'll take it. Look, consumers didn't necessarily want five blades on a razor at 10 bucks a pop sold behind lock and key. It was a fake innovation. It was just to look like they were doing something new while turning a profit in the process. But DTCs understood that what we really wanted was something reasonably priced, of good quality, and handed right to us. They listened, and we're buying. That's not just innovation. That's a coup. Try 
I'd like to thank my guests, Mike Geddes, Scott Stratton, and Barry Schwartz. The Coup is made by Church and State Podcasts for the Rogers Frequency Podcast Network. The Coup is written by Julia De Laurentiis Johnson and edited by Ali Graham, and it was mixed by Chandra Bullockon. Original theme music is by the great Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Artlist. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and if you know anyone who might like it, let them know. And as a special treat, just because I love this bit, here's my good friend, Steve Patterson, with his Too Many Blades on Our Razor bit. I'm your host and executive producer, Ron Tight. See you next time on The Coup. I spent quite a bit of time over in the Ireland, England area, and uh, the last time I tried to fly... <laughs> You've heard of it. <laughs> the last time I had to fly between uh, England and Ireland, uh, I tried to fly with a razor in my carry-on bag, which of course was confiscated, because you, you can't arrive into Ireland clean-shaven and presentable. <laughs> You will never fit in. You have to look like you've been drinking as recently as that morning. <laughs> just to fit in. But they took away my razor. I was very angry. I had to go buy a new razor. So I got, I'm excited about the new razor I've got. I haven't even really tested it yet. I got the Gillette Mach 3. <laughs> turbo! I have a turbo razor! Are you kidding me? I'm so excited because the speed of sound isn't fast enough, is it, for a shaving accessory? Give me the turbo! Hey, what are you guys trying to screw me? I want the turbo. I have a turbo razor. If I'm late for something, I don't drive, I ride my razor. It's a turbo. It has three blades of shaving action. Holy shit! Three blades of shaving, which are, as far as I'm concerned, two blades, too many. If you're gonna shave, you only need one blade. Really, it's made of steel. Your hair is made of hair. Steel versus hair, I will take steel in that fight. Right, that's why you don't see people show up for a sword fight with just a ponytail. That is not effective in a sword battle, though, though it would have made Lord of the Rings a lot shorter. Come on, Sauron. Ow! It's made of steel. Oh, Sam. <laughs> you look confused, so I'm gonna try to explain this to you. I'm saying that the razor companies are screwing us. That's what I'm telling you. You only need one blade, right? But they sold all the one-bladed razors back in the days when Sarsaparilla was sold at the saloon. Ding, 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 ding. So they, they came out with two-bladed razors. That was their next marketing idea. Like, everyone's got the one blade. We better give them two-bladed razors. What they did on the two-bladed razor was they made the first blade really crappy. <laughs> I don't know what... I think they collected used blades because the first blade on a two-bladed razor doesn't cut the hair. It just pulls it. Like, Ow! But the second blade is the original first blade. And it corrects the problem. So the net sensation you're left with is, Ow! Oh! <laughs> Okay. Then everyone bought the two-bladed razors, so they're like, I don't know, add another blade? <laughs> oh, okay, we'll try it. So now there's a three-bladed razor. Now they can't fool anyone because the first blade doesn't even touch your face. On a three-bladed razor, it floats over your face and taunts the hair as it goes by. Your mother was a nose hair! What? 
That's just ridiculous. And I thought that was the end of the razor of madness, but there are four bladed razors now. Four bladed razors. If you think you need four blades on a razor, ask yourself this first question, eh? Maybe check your species. <laughs> Just ask yourself, hey, do I regularly wake up naked in the woods? 